Good morning. I'm Pastor Gillespie from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School, Sherman Center, Random Lake, Wisconsin. It's good to have you with us here today for our Congregation of Prayer, a guide for daily meditation and prayer around God's Word. It's Saturday, December 18th, 2021. And as we do on Saturdays throughout the school year, we consider tomorrow's Old Testament and Epistle reading. Uh, the purpose of this is maybe to give you some insight into how one might prepare uh, both to hear God's Word tomorrow, but also for me to preach God's Word tomorrow. So you see some of my insights, maybe some of the ways you might uh, investigate a text and where you might look um, to provide some guidance. All right, so we're going to do that today, and that will hopefully assist you in preparing to hear tomorrow um, the final of the four prophets that we've been considering these last few weeks, and tomorrow John the Baptist. All right? Good. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, we say our memory verse one more time. Every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 through 5. Our psalm is Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth, if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem. How they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. All right, I think yesterday it was, right? I discussed with you um, how this psalm plays out in the church here, namely uh, with the beginning of the Gesimas, or rather the end of Epiphany, Transfiguration into the Gesima Sundays, um, those seven or so weeks, roughly like the 70 years that Israel was in Babylon, um, in exile in Babylon. And I think I mentioned, I can't remember what context, um, the last hymn on Transfiguration Sunday is Alleluia, Song of Gladness. Um, and the second stanza of that hymn actually refers to this psalm, all right? So while we don't have the psalm in the hymnal, uh, ironically, we actually have the psalm referred to <laughs> in uh, in the hymn. Yeah, Psalm 137, 1 through 6. Alleluia, thou resoundest true Jerusalem and free. Alleluia, joyful mother, all thy children sing with thee. But by Babylon's wa sad waters, mourning exiles now are we. All right, so it's right there. Um, Alleluia, Song of Gladness. All right, so the tradition, uh, historically Transfiguration was seven weeks um, before um, before Easter. So you had roughly 70 years. The church isn't great at math. That's just part of how it goes. Uh, and so it was connect. So Lent and the season, that short season of three Sundays before it, the, the Gesimas, um, those se seven Sundays all together were meant to mimic the exile in Babylon. And of course, we think about our bondage and sin. Um, I think you've probably heard of the four Sundays matching the 40 years of wilderness wandering or the 400 years in exile in, in Egypt. So you've got all of those um, exiles and bondage and sin kind of compounding on each other um, throughout those penit penitential seasons. All right, very good. 
Uh, meditation then on the psalm, which we do on Saturdays. Now that we've prayed it all week and considered it, um, share a little bit more. It is probably easier to identify the original setting of the psalm than any other psalm. The opening lines give it away. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows in the midst of it, we hung up our harps. This is a psalm of exile, and the setting is the Babylonian captivity of the 6th century before Christ. The exile of ancient Israel in Babylon is usually dated from 586 BC, the year that Jerusalem actually fell and was destroyed, to 538, when Cyrus the Mede, having conquered Babylon the previous year, permitted the exiles to return to Jerusalem. See Ezra 1, 1 1-4. It is useful to bear in mind, nonetheless, that some Jews, the prophet Ezekiel among them, had already been taken into bondage as hostages 11 years earlier, 2 Kings 24. Moreover, not all the captives were were able to return home, and their descendants remain in the territory of Babylon to this day. Babylon was was a land of great rivers, tributaries, and canals. Indeed, the Greeks referred to that territory as Mesopotamia, that is, the midst of the rivers, a name reminiscent of the opening Greek words of our psalm, Epiton Potomon. The major rivers of that region are the Tigris and Euphrates, but mention is made of other waterways. For example, the prophet Ezekiel wrote of his inaugural vision by the river Kabar, Ezekiel 1, a reference to the Kabari canal that flowed out of the Euphrates through the city of Babylon and then back to its mother river. Such canals were essential to the mercantile economy of the Babylonian Empire. Another of these was known was known to the Greeks as the Eulias Eulaos, excuse me, Laos, Eulaos Canal, sorry, near the city of Susa. It was the site of an ecstatic vision given to another one of Israel's prophets, Daniel, who refers to it as the river Eulai, Daniel 8. Daniel also had a vision beside the great Tigris, Daniel 10. In sum, the reference to the rivers of Babylon in the first line of our psalm is very important as an historic fact. We shall see presently that it is also important as a literary and theological image. The exiles in Babylon have hung up their musical instruments on the weeping willow trees, sad, homesick, and dejected. Moreover, Apparently, they were being taunted by their captors, for those who took us captive sought from us some lyrics, and those who enslaved us asked to hear a song, sing for us, they said, from the canticles of Zion. And just how can this be done? That is, how shall we sing a song of the Lord in a land far away? Impossible? Well, not entirely. It is a striking irony of Psalm 137 that, having asserted the impossibility of singing a song of Jerusalem in a foreign land of Babylon, we nonetheless go on to do so. Quote, Should I forget you, O Jerusalem? Let my right hand be enfeebled. May I choke on my tongue if I fail to think of you, if I do not hold Jerusalem as the wellspring of my joy. This is a psalm of two cities, Babylon and Jerusalem. Nor were Ezekiel and Daniel the last visionaries to write of them. The beloved John likewise beheldeth, beheld both these of these cities in a mystic vision. The first, Babylon, he describes as, quote, the great harlot who sits on many waters, Revelation 17, the source of her great wealth and power. Quote, the waters which you saw, he was told, were the harlots, where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Such are the rivers where we sit and weep when we remember Zion. Babylon represents both exile and oppression. For John was told, quote, And the woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Again, Revelation 17. Our psalm looks forward to the final downfall of that city, which St. John goes on to describe as the throwing of a millstone into the sea. Revelation 18.21. On the willows of Babylon, we did hang our harps, as though in prophecy of the day, when the sound of the harp would be heard there no more, Revelation 18.22. Should anyone feel daunted by the violent feelings that Psalm 137 entertains with respect to Babylon, let him consult the rejoicing of the saints over the fall of Babylon in John's mighty vision. Revelation 18.20, quote, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you, holy apostles and prophets, For God has avenged you on her. And Jerusalem, the wellspring of our joy? 
Her, too, John beholds likewise as a woman, the bride of the Lamb, the holy city, descending out of heaven. It is the city where singing and harps are heard forever, our exile over at last. All right. So, uh, one, again, the theme is, <clears throat> I guess, Babylon versus Jerusalem. But uh, the key that we uh, forget is, as much as we love this life and this world, it is likened unto Babylon by the psalmist. And uh, we sometimes you fall so in love with your captor um, that you fail to see them as a captor any longer, right? Um, I mentioned that on Facebook. Uh, this is what's called Stockholm Syndrome, right? Where you actually come to enjoy being held captive um, in slavery and in bondage. And uh, of course, that's the goal of the psychological manipulation of the captor, is that the captive no longer sees themselves as captive um, and rather are enslaved, but uh, willingly so. All right, so this is the problem with the enticements of the world. You see that with Jesus's temptation uh, by the devil in the wilderness, right? That um, the world is enticing, and it's it, we're tempted to actually um, give ourselves over to the whore that is Babylon, according to St. John. Um, but we need God's word then to remind us, no, um, Babylon is not our home, right? We are only exiles here, and this, and it will be destroyed and Jerusalem will rise again as we are uh, resurrected on the last day. All right, very good. Our Old Testament reading tomorrow, uh, referring to St. John, is from Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, What they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be required that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. There ends the reading. All right, a prophet like you from among your brethren. And uh, the Lord puts his words in his mouth, and he speaks. And if you fail to listen to the one whom the Lord sends, you're failing to listen to the Lord, right? All right, and then a reading, um, our epistle reading for tomorrow is from Philippians chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And you're used to saying amen, right? Um, this last part being the votum, as it ca was called in, the, in the, the Lutheran hymnal, right? Which was given as a, a suggested way to conclude a sermon. Might do it sometimes, sometimes not, all right? Um, I think the reason why this is appointed for tomorrow is right here, uh, verse 5. Right? Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand, right? And so all of Advent, the season of Advent, we've been looking forward to the Lord coming to us um, by way of word and sacrament, coming in the manger, coming on the last day to raise the living and the dead, right? Um, and of course, this is John's essential message, right? As prophet, um, as all the prophets pointing forward, uh, John in particular, particular, you will hear tomorrow, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? Uh, so you probably saw that in the photo here at the beginning or the the painting, right? There's John pointing to the Lamb, right? And then he's got his standard, which is uh, indicating his message, uh, uh, which says, uh, this is the Lamb of God, ecce agnus dei, uh, and I don't know what the last word is in Latin, all right? So... Uh, this is John's essential message, and I think we forget that this is the work of God's prophets from days of old. Um, one of the challenges that I think Christians face is that we've been told, um, there have been many teachers throughout the history of the church, but we've been told, particularly of late, that we should be ashamed of uh, the Old Testament scriptures. We should be ashamed of like Psalm 137, as we prayed, you know, that we would pray God um, bring vengeance upon his enemies, which are our enemies too, right? We should be ashamed of that because that's violent and that's hurtful speech. And God loves everyone. Well, God loves everyone so much that he would rebuke them when they're in their sin, that he would uh, punish them for their unrighteousness, that he would send his son Jesus to die for them, 
to forgive them their sins, that all who repent would believe that gospel and be forgiven, right? But the key there is repentance, isn't it? I mean, the key is forgiveness, ultimately. Without forgiveness, there is no repentance. Uh, But without repentance, there can be no forgiveness either. So this is John's essential message, right? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, right? Oh, what does that mean? It means you have sins that need being taken away, right? Um, So again, the work of the prophet is to prepare the way for the Lord by preaching repentance for the sake of forgiveness of sins. This is really the message of um, all the scriptures. You might say it's death and resurrection or repentance for forgiveness, right? God working throughout history, throughout time to bring his people to the knowledge of their sins for the sake of repentance um, and forgiveness in the promise of the Savior. So um, Luther wanted to remind God's people how to read um, the scriptures, namely the Old Testament. Uh, Luther being an Old Testament scholar, I think he had particular insight into this. Um, He wrote many prefaces to the Old Testament, because remember, he translated the Old Testament into German. Um, But a preface is a really helpful device to um, introduce what you're about to deliver, right? And to set the framework or the context for for what you're about to read, right? I've I've advocated that um, you do this with your will. Uh, we, We call it with a will, we call it a preamble. Same thing with like the U.S. Constitution. Um, you could call it a preface, you could call it a preamble, um, but lay out the context of um, what you're about to present. So like in the case of your will and testament, here's here's the inheritance that I'm setting forward um, for those who follow after me, for my church, for my community, for my family, right? Um, and that's a great place to present your faith in Christ as being that guiding light, which um, has directed the way that uh, you desire your Um, your inheritance to be carried forward, right? Luther does the same with the Old Testament. So um, this is a preface that he originally wrote in 1523, revised later on, and uh, has a uh, revision in the 1545 text, um, printed text, okay? So I'm going to read a little bit of this, um, but he's actually going to refer to the way that uh, we are to receive the prophet, all right? So again, connected to John and Moses, etc., Here's how it starts. Preface to the Old Testament, 1545. There are some who have little regard for the Old Testament. They think of it as a book that was given to the Jewish people only and it is now out of date, containing only stories of past times. They think they have enough in the New Testament and assert that only a spiritual sense is to be sought in the Old Testament. Origen, Jerome, and many other distinguished people have held this view. But Christ says in John 5, Search the scriptures, for it is they that bear witness to me. St. Paul bids Timothy attend to the reading of the scriptures. And in Romans 1, he declares that the gospel was promised by God in the scriptures. While in 1 Corinthians 15, um, I think he actually means, yeah, 15, he says that in accordance with the scriptures, Christ came of the seed of David, died and was raised from the dead. St. Peter, too, points us back more than once to the scriptures. They do this in order to teach us that the scriptures of the Old Testament are not to be despised, but diligently read. For they themselves base the New Testament upon them mightily, proving proving it by the Old Testament and appealing to it, as St. Luke also writes in Acts 17, saying that they at Thessalonica examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so that Paul was teaching. The ground and proof of the New Testament is surely not to be despised, and therefore the Old Testament is to be highly regarded. And what is the New Testament but a public preaching and proclamation of Christ, set forth through the sayings of the Old Testament and fulfilled through Christ? In order that those who are not more familiar with it may have instruction and guidance for reading the Old Testament with profit, I have prepared this preface to the best of the ability God has given me. I beg and really caution every pious Christian not to be offended by the simplicity of the language and stories frequently encountered there, but fully realize that however simple they may seem, these are the very words, works, judgments, and deeds of the majesty, power, and wisdom of the Most High God. For these are the scriptures which make fools of all the wise and understanding and are open only to the small and simple, as Christ says in Matthew 11. Therefore, dismiss your own opinions and feelings and think of the scriptures as the loftiest and noblest of holy things, as the richest of minds which can never be sufficiently explored, in order that you may find 
that divine wisdom which God here lays before you in such simple guise as to quench all pride. Here you will find the swaddling cloths and the manger in which Christ lies and to which the angel points the shepherds. Simple and lowly are these swaddling clothes, but dear is the treasure Christ who lies in them. All right, so if you thought of Old Testament prophecy as the swaddling cloths and manger in which Christ is laid, I think that's a beautiful image, right? And fitting for our season. Know then that the Old Testament is a book of laws which teaches that men what men are to do and not to do, and in addition gives examples and stories how these laws are kept or broken, just as the New Testament is the gospel or book of grace, which teaches where one is to get the power to fulfill the law. Now in the New Testament, there are also given, along with the teaching about grace, many other teachings that are laws and commandments for the control of the flesh, since in this life the Spirit is not perfected and grace alone cannot rule. Similarly, in the Old Testament, there are too, besides the laws, certain promises and words of grace, by which the holy fathers and prophets are under, under the law were kept, like us, in faith in Christ. Nevertheless, just as the chief teaching of the New Testament is really the proclamation of grace and peace through the forgiveness of sins in Christ, so the chief teaching of the Old Testament is really the teaching of laws, the showing up of sin, and the demanding of good. You should expect this in the Old Testament. All right, and then he starts to go through the different books and tells you how to understand each book. So Genesis, Exodus, he goes through the books of Moses, etc. All right, um, but I'm going to skip forward a little bit because I said we need to look and see how um, he refers to John. Oh, of course, I lost my place. All right, here we go. All right. For this reason, then, when Christ comes, the law ceases, especially the Levitical law, which, as has been said, makes sins of things that in their nature are not sins. The Ten Commandments also cease, not in the sense that they are no longer to be kept or fulfilled, but in the sense that the office of Moses in them ceases. It no longer increases sin by the Ten Commandments, and sin is no longer the sting of death. For through Christ, sin is forgiven, God is reconciled, and man's heart has begun to feel kindly toward the law. The office of Moses can no longer rebuke the heart and make it to be sin for not having kept the commandments or for being guilty of death as it did prior to grace before Christ came. All right, so now he's talking about the nature of the Ten Commandments. There's now, um, for the Christian, they become instruction. Um, We don't hate the Ten Commandments, but before we did (laughs) because all they did was show us our sin and increase sin in us because they lacked we lack the forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus. That's his point. I don't necessarily agree with quite as um, strong a point Luther is making here because um, God is continuously attaching forgiveness of sins um, to the Levitical law, right? Now, Christ has definitely taken the place of the Levitical law. No more need for blood of bulls and goats and those sort of things, right? St. Paul teaches this in 2 Corinthians 3, where he says that the splendor in the face of Moses is taken away because of the glory in the face of Jesus Christ. That is, the office of Moses, which makes us to be sin and shame with the glare of the knowledge of our wickedness and nothingness, no longer causes us pain and no longer terrifies us with death. For we we now have the glory in the face of Christ. This is the office of grace, whereby we know Christ, by whose righteousness, life, and strength we fulfill, uh, by whose righteousness, life, and strength we fulfill the law and overcome sin and death, or death and hell. Thus it was that the three apostles who saw Moses and Elijah on Mount Tabor were not afraid of them because of the tender glory in the face of Christ, transfiguration. Yet in Exodus 34, where Christ was not present, the children of Israel could not endure the splendor and brightness in the face of Moses so that he had to put a veil over it. All right, so here's how he's going to use our Deuteronomy text. For the law has three kinds of pupils. The first are those who hear the law and despise it and who lead an impious life or impious life without fear. To those the law does not come. They are represented by the calf worshippers in the wilderness, on whose account Moses broke the tables of the law. To them he did not bring the law. All right. So there's those who know the law but despise it. The second kind of pupil are those who attempt to fulfill the law by their own power, but without grace. They are represented by the people who could not look on the face of Moses when he brought the tables of the law a second time. The law comes to them, but they cannot endure it. They therefore put a veil over it and lead a life of hypocrisy, doing outward works of the law, yet the law makes it all to be sin, where the veil is taken off. 
For the law shows that our ability counts for nothing without Christ's grace. All right, so this would be represented, I, I would say, to import a little bit in the New Testament by um, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the scribes, right? The third kind of pupils, here's the key, are those who see Moses clearly without a veil. These are they who understand that the intention of the law and how it demands impossible things. Their sin comes to power, their death is mighty, their Goliath's spear is like a weaver's beam and its point weighs 600 shekels of brass. Yeah, the head of the spear, right? So that all the children of Israel flee before it unless the one and only David, Christ our Lord, saves us from all this. All right, so there he's taking David as a type or shadow of Christ, the anti-type, right? And Goliath then being um, the weight and accusation of the law and Christ freeing us from that. For if Christ's glory did not come alongside the splendor of Moses, no one could bear the brightness of the law, the terror of sin and death. These pupils fall away from all works and presumption and learn from the law nothing else except to recognize sin and to yearn for Christ. We call this the second use, right? The law always accuses. This is the true office of Moses and the very nature of the law. So Moses himself has told us that his office and teaching should endure until Christ and then cease. When he says in Deuteronomy 18, here it is, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren, him you shall heed. This is the noblest saying in all of Moses, indeed the very heart of it all. The apostle appeal, apostles appealed to it and made great use of it to strengthen the gospel and to abolish the law, Acts 3 and Acts 7. All the prophets as well drew heavily upon it. For since God here promises another Moses whom they are to hear, it follows of necessity that this other one would teach something different from Moses. And Moses gives up his power and yields to him so that men will listen to him. The coming prophet cannot then teach the law, for Moses has done that to perfection. For the law's sake, there would be no need to raise up another prophet. Therefore, this word was spoken concerning Christ and the teaching of grace. For this reason also, St. Paul calls the law of Moses, the Old Testament, and Christ uh, does the same when he institutes the New Testament, right? That's at the Lord's Supper. It is a, a testament because in it, God has promised and bequeathed to the people of Israel the land of Canaan if they would keep it. He gave it to them too, and it was confirmed by the death and blood of sheep and goats. But since this, new t this testament did not stand upon God's grace, but upon men's works, it had to become obsolete and cease and the promised land had to be lost again, because the law cannot be fulfilled by works. And another testament had to come by which, uh, which would not become obsolete, which would not stand upon our deeds either, but a God, upon God's words and works, so that it might endure forever. Therefore it is confirmed by the death and blood of the eternal person, and eternal land is promised and given. Isn't that beautiful? All right. Yeah, so you see, Moses actually promised um, one who would come to fulfill the law in our place, right? And to bring about a new and greater testament, right? The testament of his blood given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins in the sacrament, right? Body given uh, on the cross for you. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, so Luther, um, being an Old Testament scholar, shows you how you are to read the Old Testament scriptures, right? And we are to learn by way of the example of the people um, the futility of, um, of trying to be saved by works. We see this over and over and over. Even the most faithful people of God, ultimately, well, the faithful people of God in the Old Testament always fall back on the promise. But you, O Lord, are merciful. You have promised a Savior. You have promised to rescue us from sin, death, and devil, right? And it's on that basis that I'm going to put my hope and my confidence, right? We see that with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see that with David. We see that uh, to some degree with Solomon. We see that with the prophets. All right. Um, and speaking of prefaces, um, I'm going to read a little bit from another preface for you. All right. And this is actually from the preface to the Book of Concord uh, when it was published in 1580. Remember, that's our Lutheran confessions, of, of which are named as our standard for uh, doctrine in our churches. Right. And you see that in our the Constitution here, which, by the way, uh, our new Constitution revision was... Uh, approved by the district constitution committee. So we'll be able to um, bring that into um, force, I guess, or bring it into play. I don't know how you want to say it. Uh, 
at our February uh, voters meeting, I think probably to go into effect um, with the new calendar year, or new uh, fiscal year, I should say. But maybe not. Maybe we can just put it into place right away. We'll see. Uh, anyway, a preface, right? And this is the preface to the Book of Concord, or we called it Concordia, the pious confession of faith and doctrine repeated by unanimous consent of the electors, princes, and estates of the empire and, and of their theologians who embrace the Augsburg Confession. All right, 1580 and 1584. I'm going to read the beginning, and then I want to read, um, again, their attitude about doctrine, because this is what we need to get after. It's the same thing with, um, you know, our emphasis on be salvation by grace through faith and not by works, right? And we're going to talk about that in a second. So the preface to the Christian book of Concord. To the readers, one and all, of these our writings, we the, are the electors, princes, and deputies of the Holy Roman Empire in Germany, supporters of the Augsburg Confession, who subscribed our names to that document. We announce and declare according to the dignity and rank of each person, our devotion, friendship, and greeting combined with willing service. In these last times, and in this old age of the world, what a remarkable favor of Almighty God has arisen after the darkness of papal superstitions! Exclamation mark. According to his unspeakable love, patience, and mercy, he willed that the light of his gospel and word, through which we alone or through which we receive true salvation, should arise and shine clearly and purely in Germany, our most beloved fatherland. Therefore, a brief, succinct confession was prepared from God's word, the most holy writings of the prophets and apostles. At the Diet of Augsburg in the year 1530, this confession was offered in the German and Latin languages by our most godly ancestors to Emperor Charles V of excellent memory. It was laid before the deputies of the empire. Finally, it was circulated publicly in the entire world among all people professing Christian doctrine. And so it was spread everywhere and began to, found, to be found in the mouths and speech of all. Later, many churches and schools embraced and defended this confession as a current symbol for the chief articles of faith. This was done especially by those involved in, the con in controversy with the Romanists and various corruptions of the heavenly doctrine. With lasting agreement, they appealed to the Augsburg Confession without any controversy and doubt. They knew that the doctrine included in it was both supported by firm testimonies of Scripture and approved by the ancient and accepted symbols, that is, the creeds. They have also constantly judged this confession to be the only and lasting consensus of the true believing church. In the past, this consensus was defended against many heresies and errors, and now it is repeated. All right. And uh, they keep going. They talked about Luther. Um, they talk about their duty to defend the faith. All right. And actually, we should read this part because it'll set up the part I want to read. We conclude that nothing more agreeable could happen and should be sought more eagerly and prayerfully from Almighty God than the following. A. Both our churches and our schools should persevere in the pure doctrine of God's word and in that longed-for and godly oneness of mind. And B. As was the case while Luther was still alive, that we should be regulated by the divine word, which was handed down in posterity in a godly and excellent way. However, we notice something else happening. This happened in apostolic times in those churches where the apostles themselves had planted the gospel of Christ. Corruptions were introduced by false brethren. So because of our sins and looseness of these times, this trouble has been allowed by an angry God against our churches. Therefore, mindful of our duty, we know this has been divinely commanded to us, we think that we should apply ourselves diligently to the work of attacking the false teachings that have been spread in our provinces and realms. Such teachings are gradually gaining favor for themselves in, the, in a manner and familiarity of the people. We should see to it that the subjects in our government may persevere in the straight way of godliness and in the truth of a heavenly doctrine. This has been acknowledged, retained, and defended so far. The people should not be allowed to be led away from it. In this matter, indeed, partly our most worthy predecessors, partly we ourselves, were eagerly at work. Then in the year of Christ, 1558, the Diet was held by the electors at Frankfurt on the Main. A resolution was adopted by a unanimous vote that a special General Assembly should be held. In a thorough but friendly manner, there would be a conference among us about the things that are hatefully charged by our adversaries against our schools, churches and schools. And then they're going to talk about the Nuremberg Conference of 1561, etc. But here's the key. Mindful of our duty... We know that this has been divinely commanded to us. We think that we should apply ourselves diligently to the work of attacking the fa of false teachings that had spread in the provinces and realms. 
All right, now how do you reconcile that with five, let your gentleness be known to all men? If we're attacking false doctrine, is that being gentle? Well, I think the key there is the manner by which um, you attack false doctrine, right? Uh, and they're going to talk about that. So I'm going to scroll down to it. So you had Nomberg, the Nomberg Conference failed, Torgau in 1576, right? They talk about the role of the Augsburg Confession, um, also the second edition of the Augsburg Confession and how it was corrupted, all right? And then finally now, the Book of Concord, right? Which is this collected um, expression used here. So they're going to talk about the, um, the attacking of false doctrine now. And listen to how they talk about how to attack false doctrine. Right? And it is an attack, right? It has to be defended. It has to be um, sought after and undermined, right? Paragraph 19 of the uh, preface. Now, about the phrases and forms of expression that are used in the Book of Concord. We speak of the majesty of the human nature in the person of Christ, elevated to the, and placed at the right hand of God. We do this in order to remove all subtle suspicions and causes of offense that might arise in the different uses of the word abstract, uh, as both the schools and fathers have used in this term up to now. All right, now skip ahead. They do some positive things here. Then verse, I meant to start at paragraph 20. Now about the condemnations, censures, and rejections of godless doctrines, and especially about what has arisen concerning the Lord's Supper. All right, so now the attacks, right? Because it does attack. The Book of Concord, it's on the attack, right, against false doctrine, with condemnations, censures, and rejections of godless doctrines. These had to be clearly set forth in this, our declaration, through explanation, decision, and decision about controversial articles. This was done not only so that all may guard against these condemned doctrines, but also for certain other reasons that could in no way be ignored. So it is not at all our plan and purpose to condemn people who err because of a certain simplicity in mind, but are not blasphemers against the truth of heavenly doctrine. All right, so we're not attacking simple men here um, who have mixed error in with the truth, right? Much less indeed do we intend to condemn entire churches that are either under the Roman Empire of German, the German nation or elsewhere, right? So we're not attacking church bodies and we're not attacking simple-minded um, people who are not blasphemers, um, but who err, right? Very key. Rather, it has been our intention and desire in this way to openly criticize and condemn only the fanatical opinions and their stubborn and blasphemous teachers, right? So we attack the teaching and we attack those um, who as a whole teach falsely. We judge that they should in no way be tolerated in our dominions, churches, and schools. For these errors conflict with God's clear word, they do so in such a way that they cannot be reconciled with the word, right? So a false teacher is one who teaches that which undermines the gospel of Christ. That's how I would summarize it, right? And if he, under, and if he refuses to repent, he cannot be allowed to continue to teach or preach in our churches. All right. We have written condemnations also for this reason, that, that all godly persons might be diligently warned to avoid these errors, all right? So for the sake of the simple mind, they can see what these errors are. They're clearly confessed. For we have no doubt whatsoever that even in the, those churches which have not agreed with us in all things, many godly and by no means wicked people are found, right? So the mixture of believers and unbelievers in every, in every congregation and um, confession. They follow their own simplicity and do not correctly understand the matter itself, but in no way do they approve the blasphemies that are cast forth, say, against the Holy Supper as it is administered in our churches according to Christ's institution. With the unanimous approval of all good people, the Lord's Supper is taught according to the words of Christ's testament itself. We are also in great hope that if these simple people would be taught correctly about all these things, the Spirit of the Lord aiding them, they would agree with us and with our churches and schools to the infallible truth of God's word. And certainly a duty is laid especially upon all the churches, theologians, and ministers. All right, now here again, that... Um, let your gentleness be made known to men. Listen to this. With such fitting moderation, gentleness, right? They should also teach from God's word those who have erred from the truth, either from a certain simplicity or ignorance. They should teach about the peril of their salvation. They should fortify them against corruptions, lest all may perish under the blind, um, while the leaders, while the, excuse me, while the blind are leaders of the blind. Therefore, by our writing, we testify in the sight of Almighty God and before the entire church 
that it has never been our purpose by means of this godly formula for union to create trouble or danger to the godly who are suffering persecution today. We have already entered into the fellowship of grief with them, moved by Christian love, so that we are shocked at the persecution and most painful tyranny that is used against these poor people with such severity. We sincerely detest it, right? So they're talking about the actual physical bodily harm that was being brought against those who had the Augsburg Confession as their confession. In no way do we agree to the shedding of that innocent blood, which undoubtedly will be required with great severity from the persecutors at the Lord's awful judgment and before Christ's court. They will then certainly render a most strict account and suffer a fearful punishment. Again, in these matters, as we have mentioned earlier, this has always been our purpose. In our lands, dominions, schools, and churches, no other doctrine should be proclaimed and accurately set forth except that which is founded upon God's word and contained in the Augsburg Confession and the Apology when properly understood in its genuine sense. Opinions conflicting with these are not allowed. Indeed, the formula of agreement was begun and completed with this purpose. So, before God and all mortals, we once more declare and testify that in the declaration of the controversial articles, of which mention has already been made several times, we are not introducing a new confession. So, I mean, this is one of the the challenges when it comes to doctrine. Um, And I suppose it's even true of something like the small catechism, um, is that we don't bring along the small catechism to like beat doctrine over the heads of people and say, you're not teaching, you're not believing correctly, right? Um, But the purpose of all of our confessions, yes, even when it's rebuking um, obvious and outward false teachers and false doctrine, um, is not just to bring correction, but it's to actually guide the people in the way of the truth, to direct them from the confession of faith, be it the small catechism, large catechism, or the rest, into the study and examination of the scriptures, so that they read the scriptures. It's always um, leading into the scriptures. So uh, in our catechesis here in this parish, we actually don't talk about the catechism and then the scripture, but we talk, we read the scripture and then we confess the catechism. Why? Because the catechism, it, we have to hear the scripture first. If the catechism doesn't agree, then we can't actually accept that confession of faith, you know, that dogma. Um, so again, this we want to talk a little bit about the use of the law, right? The law is to guide people to faith in Christ. It's to bring to repentance. Um, that so also, as the Book of Concord says, the the use of dogma is again, we don't lay out our doctrine, our dogma, for the sake of um, accusation and um, condemnation. Although it does do that, but it's again for the sake of repentance that we repent of that false, our false teaching, our false understanding, our false belief, and believe the gospel again, and seek forgiveness in Christ for the sake of um, salvation, eternal life. So again, both in Luther, in the preface to the Old Testament, but also the preface to the Book of Concord, you see how it's laid out. And and this understand this is help, helps us understand the prophetic office. So when we're thinking about somebody like John the Baptist, um, John the Baptist is there, yes, to bring knowledge of sin to the people, right? But for the sake of pointing to Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, so, you know, it's a frustration that that. Um, parents have, I think, with children, pastors have with congregations, individuals in the congregation. I'm sure the the district presidents and the synod president has um, with the church body is that they they don't, you know, at every level from the lowest, you know, from the father over his children, all the way up, school teachers, pastors, etc. Uh, people don't want to receive correction. They see it as a um, an insult to their pride, which of course it is. Um, they don't want to be humiliated, made humble. Um, but I think um, the reason for that is maybe that we don't always set forgiveness um, before them in its full sweetness. It's saying, Christ died for you. Christ forgives you. Right? Forgiveness of sins is yours. Here it is in your baptism, in the Lord's Supper, in that word of absolution declared each and every Sunday. Right? Um, yes, the Lord is going to reveal your sin, but it's, it's that your faith would re- return to him um, and to his son right, for the forgiveness of sins. So that, that might affect the way you read the Old Testament. It ought to be the way that affect the way you read um, the accusations, especially the more severe ones, say in the uh, formula of Concord and its solid declaration, all right? As, yes, rebuke of wrongdoing, but for the sake of forgiveness, for the sake of repentance, all right? And yes, we have to call churches, congregations, false teachers to repentance. <laughs> 
We, uh, you tolerate false doctrine, it becomes your standard, just gets integrated into the life of the church. And it's very hard to extract it out again then. All right. So, um, let's see if Luther agrees well, with the scriptures when it comes to uh, the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer, all right, which is, give us this day our daily bread. What does this mean? God certainly gives daily bread to everyone without our prayers, even to all people, evil people. But we pray in this petition that God would lead us to realize this and to receive our daily bread with thanksgiving. And while Luther doesn't list it, coffee is included. It was time. Okay, what is meant by daily bread? Daily bread includes everything that has to do with the support and needs of the body, such as food, clothing, shoes, house, home, land, animals, money, goods, a devout husband or wife, devout children, devout workers, devout and faithful rulers, good government, good weather, peace, health, self-control, good reputation, good friends, faithful neighbors, and the like. Zoet Voss, including coffee. If you know the German. We pray. Heavenly Father, you generously give daily bread to us and even to all evil people without our prayers. You richly and daily provide us with everything that we need to support us in our body and life. Lead us to realize this, that we might receive our daily bread with thanksgiving. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, we implore you to hear our prayers and to lighten the darkness of our hearts by your gracious visitation. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. We pray this day for faithfulness to the end, for the renewal of those who are withering in the faith or have fallen away, for all pastors as they prepare to administer Christ's holy gifts, and for receptive hearts and minds on the Lord today. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Uh, we give thanks to God today for uh, birthdays, mine and uh, Leah and Angelina's. We also pray for those households of our church, especially Doug, Renee, Pauline, Sam, Dan, and Liz, and Carol. Continue to rejoice with um, the Larsons at the birth of Dorothea. We pray for those ill receiving treatment or recovering, especially Marcella, Kelsey, Frank, Amanda, Dan, Timothy, Janice, and Colin, Ken, Norm, Sandy, Kathy, Jim, Elaine, and Mike. We pray that the Lord comfort our homebound, especially those in isolation with COVID. Bev, David, Roy, Willis, Mickey, and Paul. We pray for all the missions and mercy work of the church, especially a place of refuge, which is our mission of the month. We ask the Lord to give victory over temptations and for safekeeping from the devil's plots. We pray for those grieving, um, that the Lord would comfort them in their distress, especially the family and friends of Roger and Rhonda, Dionysio and Wallace. For all this, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. We hear the uh, great O Antiphon for this day. O Adonai, and ruler of the house of Israel, who appeared to Moses in the burning bush and gave him the law of Sinai, come with an outstretched arm and redeem us. Pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings and life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul, and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. All right, we sing our hymn one more time. Come thou long expected Jesus.
from the long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free from our fears and sins. Release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel, strength and consolation, above all the earth thou art. Here is our love, every nation, joy of every longing heart. Thy people to deliver, Lord, a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring, by thy Lord, eternal spirit. All right, good to have you with us here today for our Congregation of Prayer, a guide for daily meditation and prayer around God's Word. Come to you each morning at 9 a.m., except for Sundays, when uh, you join us in person at 9.30 a.m. here at St. John's Sherman Center, if you're, if it's possible for you, of course, if you're in driving distance. Um, and we'll have divine service tomorrow, Advent 4, all right? So we'll uh, rejoice in the gift of John the Baptist and his preaching to us. All right, so Lord be with you all, and we'll see you tomorrow.